Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 28, Mommies in the Trees. It was early and bitterly cold that morning, December 12th, 1985, when 21-year-old Diana Robertson and her 36-year-old boyfriend, Mike Reamer, climbed into his red pickup truck with their two-and-a-half-year-old little girl, Crystal. Mike was employed as a roofer, but he also earned money on the side as an animal trapper. He would sell the animal pelts. But to catch quarry, trappers had to create a trap line, which was a route of traps spread throughout the woods. Mike had become an expert in traversing difficult terrain that was remote. With years of experience under his belt as a trapper, he knew the best places to set his traps, which would require routinely baiting and resetting them. That morning, Mike and Diana were anxious to get an early start because they had a lot of ground to cover. They would check Mike's traps and rebate them, and they also planned to cut down a Christmas tree for themselves and for Diana's mom. Cutting down a wild Christmas tree was something Mike did every year, and being well-versed in the wild woods of the Pacific Northwest, he had curated a special spot that he liked to go to to find the perfect Christmas tree. But the family never made it to that special spot. They never trimmed that Christmas tree later on that night. Somewhere along the way, that day, all three of them, Diana, Mike, and Crystal, they disappeared. Then mysteriously, a little girl would be found abandoned at a Kmart. They had no idea who she was, and when they asked her, where's your mommy, she could only whisper, mommy's in the trees. And lo and behold, the little girl, sometime later in the afternoon, late, late afternoon, early evening, is... Finally, someone realizes that this kid's abandoned in the store, outside the store, and police are called, and so the little girl gets taken into protective custody and is turned over to CPS as a Jane Doe. They don't know who she is. They don't know anything about her. That's Detective Pat Beal. He's an investigator with the Lewis County Prosecutor's Office. Detective Beal has decades of experience. In fact, he tried to retire. But the Lewis County Attorney General's office came knocking because they wanted him to reinvestigate cold cases. And at the top of their list was the investigation into what happened to Diana Robertson and Mike Reamer. We were handed about three or four cases and asked to review them and see if there's anything, you know, from a Monday morning quarterbacking situation that could possibly be done with with the case and, uh, you know, with new technologies and things like that 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 are going on right now. So it's rather lengthy, so it took several months to get into this. One thing that became very clear when Detective Beale began digging into the case was that Diana Robertson and Mike Reamer had a tumultuous relationship. And that early morning that they set out to go set the traps and get the Christmas trees, they'd actually recently reconciled, even though at the time, both of them had active restraining orders against each other. Reamer and Robertson have protection orders against each other, so they've had a violent past, you know, before, but they also have a child in common, and at the time, she's a little over two years old, I think two years, six months old. They all left her apartment that morning, early in the morning, and his, Reamer's part-time job, was, or his hobby job, was trapping. He was, Ray, his father was a um, forest worker, you know, like a <clears throat> ranger or department, you know, DNR type person. And so he kind of grew up in that, that type of environment. So his hobby, his profession was a roofer. His hobby or his side job was a trapping lines. So early in that morning, the three of them left, that's Robertson, Reamer, and the little girl, Crystal, left to go check the trap lines. So Diana and Mike are on the upswing of a very volatile relationship when they headed out that morning from Diana's apartment, which was in the city of Puyallup, about 45 minutes from Seattle. Puyallup has a lot of remote wilderness. So that early morning, they checked traps that were close to Diana's apartment. According to Mike's dad, after these traps had been checked, 
and rebated, they stopped off at his house for a quick pit stop before heading out into the wilderness. Somewhere around 9 o'clock, they show up at his father's house, and this is all in Puyallup. And the little girl, Crystal and Reamer, go inside his father's house to relieve the little girl. So they walk in the door, and this is from you know his father's recollection, that they came in and he was having breakfast, so he offered him pancakes and eggs or whatever you know the breakfast was. And Reamer said, no, she just has to use the bathroom. And so, so the little girl uses the bathroom. He goes in the, his bedroom, gets something, and then they leave. And at that time, Diana wasn't didn't come in the house for whatever reason. We don't know. Take note here that Mike told his dad that Diana had chosen to stay in the truck that morning because he never actually saw her. It's an important detail we'll get into later. For now, Mike and Crystal get back into the truck and head out again. Diana and Mike had a routine when she helped him check his traps. Basically, he would launch off in a small boat, and he would go along the river, pulling up to the riverbank as needed to check his traps. Then Diana would drive downriver at the end of the trap line and pick him up. My understanding is how they would do that is he would take the boat that was on top of this truck, put this small boat in and float downstream and she would pick him up at the next location. They get out and if he had trapped animals, they would, you know, process those trapped animals. Anyways, they did this several times. Later in the afternoon, a little girl was seen walking around Kmart alone. She looks to be around two and a half years old. During the day, sometime after 9 o'clock or 9.15, 9.20, whenever they left Dad's house, they left Puyallup, and the little girl is found in up on Pacific Highway, which is the road going up the mountain, and there's a strip, not a strip mall back in the day. You know, this is 1985. There's a, a, a Kmart store, which some other stores attach, so like a small old-day strip mall, you know, a little different than we have now. And lo and behold, the little girl, sometime later in the afternoon, late late afternoon, early evening, is finally someone realizes that this kid's abandoned in the store, outside the store, and police are called. And so the little girl gets taken into protective custody and is turned over to CPS as a Jane Doe. They don't know who she is. They don't know anything about her. She's only two and a half and isn't able to communicate who she is or where her parents are. Meanwhile, When Diana, Crystal, and Mike don't return with the Christmas trees that night, their family members are worried. It's not long before a missing persons report has been filed on all three in the city of Puyallup. But the investigators speaking to the little girl don't know this. When they ask the little girl where her mommy is, she had a very strange response. Mommy's in the trees. She wouldn't say anything more. And the woman who conducted the interview with Crystal noted that she seemed very afraid of men in particular. Diana's family is sick with worry. They had filled out that missing persons report on all three, and they still hadn't heard from Diana or Mike. They don't yet know that Crystal is in the custody of Child Protective Services. So this little girl is now in state's custody. No one knows who she is, but still reported missing along with mom and dad. So there's a lot of reference of the time period and how she got dropped off and vehicle seen and who she was seen with at the store. No, nothing can be confirmed and positive. All we know is that she got dropped off there. Two days after Diana, Mike, and Crystal have gone missing, Diana's mom is watching the news. And she sees a photo of her granddaughter flash upon the screen. Authorities are asking people to call in if they have any information about this little girl who's been abandoned at a Kmart. Diana's mother sprang into action. She reached out to CPS. And it wasn't long before she had Crystal back. But where were her parents, Diana and Mike? Crystal couldn't say. And the little red truck with the boat on it hadn't been seen by anyone. But weeks went by with still no word from Diana or Mike. But that would change in February. A man was driving through LB, Washington, which is about an hour away from Puyallup, the city where Diana and Mike lived. Ironically, this man happened to live in Puyallup too, although he had no relationship to Diana or Mike. 
So this guy, he'd been visiting a friend for a few days, and it was a couple hours drive away from his home. So on his way back into Puyallup, he decides to randomly pull off the road in this remote wilderness. And he lets his German Shepherd, Max, go get a runaround. So a citizen, you know, pulls off the side of the road with his dog to relieve himself. He's traveling from one city to go home and pulls off so his dog's not running alongside the highway. He pulls off on this fire road and, you know, is relieving the dog and he sees a truck up ahead. And this is in the wintertime and it's, you know, there's snow on the ground and snow on the vehicle. And he says, geez, that, that doesn't look right. Curious. The man starts walking toward the truck in the distance. And as he closes the gap, he thinks he sees a deer carcass behind the truck's bumper. But then immediately his head is on a swivel, thinking about a nearby hunter. He doesn't want to get shot on accident. He calms himself down a bit as he takes in the scene, and he notices the three to four inches of snowfall on the ground. It's undisturbed. His rapid heart rate slows down even more when he sees that there's a boat on top of the truck, and it too has inches of snow. And he thinks that object, the deer, he just is like, no way, the hunter's not going to leave that behind. But as he got closer, walking through the snowfall, there was this lonely feeling surrounding the scene, his footfalls muffled by the quietness of the snow. And when he gets to the pickup, the man looks inside the window. He sees a sweater, a purse, and a cigarette case. And something about the scene becomes too eerie for him. He doesn't check to see if it was a deer. He reckons with the hairs on the back of his neck, which are standing up. Suddenly, his curiosity is replaced with fear. Something was off here, and he didn't want any part of it. So he retraces his steps, makes a note of the truck's license plate, and starts walking back. Calling out for Max, his dog, he hurries back to his vehicle. But on his way home, he has time to ponder the scene, and he's troubled by it. So much so that as soon as he returns home, he calls his wife and tells her about the mysterious truck and his feelings of unease about seeing the contents inside. Why would a woman leave her purse behind in the truck? It just didn't make sense. Coincidentally, the man who saw the truck in the woods on that fire road just happened to live in Puyallup, the same city where Diana and Mike lived. The man's wife reminded him of that missing trapper and his red pickup truck with the boat on it which had been all over the news. She urged him to call the police right away. So he did. He reached out to the Pierce County Sheriff's Office. That was the agency handling the missing persons investigation related to Diana and Mike. The man explains how he happened upon that red truck with a boat on it and provided a license plate number. They looked it up immediately and knew that truck was connected to Mike Reamer. But where the truck was found was in Lewis County. And it came out, originally it started out as a missing persons report out of Pierce County. And for those listening, Pierce County and, and Lewis County are joining counties out in a rural section of, of the county. So we're talking out, out in the forest, mountainous forest area. So it's a you know, difficult terrain thing. So it, it, it came out as, as a missing person for months. And so Lewis County wasn't even involved in it. So Pierce County Sheriff's Office requested that this man meet them at the Lewis County Sheriff's Office, which was responsible for the site where he'd seen the truck. And he leads these investigators to that fire road in Elby. When officers get to the truck, they immediately go to the object that the man had believed was a deer. It was covered with snow and were shocked to discover that it was the body of a woman. For all practical purposes, it, it was probably there for six or eight weeks. You're talking about Diana Robertson's body. Diana Robertson's body and her significant other, boyfriend, child in common, Reamer, his vehicle. So it's his vehicle with his trapping boat on top. So you, you have this scene that's there, and now Lewis County guys get involved in it. At that point, the murder investigation of this woman, who had yet to be identified, became the responsibility of the Lewis County Sheriff's Office. Despite a snow-covered crime scene, they're on it. Investigators would carefully remove the snow, and that's when the true horror of the crime scene began to unfold. The woman's head was close to the truck's bumper. She was lying on her back with her hands bound beneath her by a piece of white cotton-type rope. She was nude except for one red sock, which was still on her left foot, and her legs were spread apart. The positioning of her legs is important because it was a red flag. Was this a crime motivated by sexual violence? 
Under the snow, they found a pair of blue and white Nike tennis shoes. Inside one of the sneakers was a single red sock stuffed inside. Underneath the shoes, there was a pair of blue jeans. And though they couldn't be absolutely 100% sure, they did note that in one of the missing person's photographs of Diana, she'd been wearing what appeared to be the same jeans. Cadaver dogs were brought in to continue the search for clues. Metal detectors were also on hand to alert them to any evidence that was hidden beneath the snow. The woman's body was brought to the morgue and the red pickup truck with the boat on top was taken to the sheriff's office to be processed. During the autopsy, they noted that the wrist binding material had an unusual knot arrangement. And underneath that binding was a shirt that was wrapped around her wrists and then the cord was wrapped around that shirt. The bra was also located on a portion of the wrist and forearm. It took me a while to make sense of the bindings, but it sounds like the bra and sweater that had been tied around her wrists had been previously cut. It's a complicated arrangement. So I'm gonna read from the police report, which says, quote, reporting officer noted that this further examination indicated the sweater had been cut horizontally across the shoulders and the front directly through a nylon type zipper and then had also been cut down each sleeve to the cuff. The brassiere was cut down the middle too, possibly to facilitate its removal. A total of 18 stab wounds were then counted both front and rear, at least two of which penetrated the heart. Dr. Brady advised that he was not impressed by the neck ligature, a man's tube sock with blue ring, as a strangulation device, but rather as a capture-type instrument. It was, everything's covered in snow. It looked like she was pulled out of the back of the vehicle, pulled down, uh, laying on the ground. She was to the rear of the vehicle, and she was stabbed like 18 times. And she had ligatures. Her bra was pulled down her back and used possibly as a ligature. There was another piece of cloth that, you know, it's hard to describe. It's almost like a, to me, it, it looks like, and I haven't, I've just seen it from pictures. I haven't seen it, you know, taken it out of evidence bags and things and looked at it, but it looked like, you know, maybe some heavy gauze wrapping, that type of material it looked like to me. And that was used as a ligature to pull her arms behind behind her back. And then she had a tube sock um, around her neck. The coroner would refer to it not as a strangulation device, but as something to capture a person by their neck. And the wrist bindings were unusual. Later, a detective would find a hair tie at a Kmart made of similar material that was used to bind Diana's wrists. During the autopsy, there was little doubt that whoever murdered Diana did so in a violent rage. But whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted wasn't clear. From what the pathologist said, said back there when they did the autopsy and stuff, they said there's no indication of forcible rape. They can tell that by bruising and damage, you know, in the vaginal and rectal area and things like that. But you can't ever be 100% sure, you know, when someone's sitting out frozen for six weeks or eight weeks and, you know, there's decomposition and that type of stuff, so... They were able to collect semen inside of Diana that they saved, and we'll get into that in a bit. The cause of death was attributed to those vicious knife wounds to the heart, not strangulation by the tube sock. This tube sock, as you've said, and, and it's so true, back in the 80s, you know, everybody was wearing tube socks. What was the purpose of the tube sock around the neck, knowing that that wasn't the cause of death and that she wasn't strangled? Um, well, we, we don't, I mean, she was strangled at some point, but not strangled to death. If you'll recall, the coroner described the tube sock not as a device for strangulation, but rather as a capture-type instrument. And I've made special note of this tube sock because it will play an important role in another case, which we'll get to. There were so many questions, and finding Diana's body didn't make it any easier to understand who did it, what happened, who had murdered Diana, who dropped off Crystal, and where was Mike? We'll be back after a quick break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Obviously, as Diana's intimate partner, Mike would naturally be a person of interest, especially because his whereabouts remained a mystery. It was highly suspicious. Investigators went over Mike's truck with a fine-tooth comb. The first place they looked was the back of the truck because there was a suspicious odor. It didn't take them long to determine that the foul odor was coming from a pile of dead animals. The presumption was that Mike had retrieved those animals from his trap line before whatever happened to them happened. And there were other interesting pieces of evidence that they collected from the vehicle. Here's an inventory of some of the big-ticket items that were found in Mike's pickup. His coat was found behind the seat in the truck. If he had murdered Diana and abandoned his daughter at the Kmart before heading out to the fire road, why wouldn't he take his coat? Remember, it was the middle of December the day they went out. They also noted that the 22 caliber pistol, which Mike always kept with him, was not found in the truck. The large quantity of animals found in the rear of the truck indicated that Mike had progressed through his trap line that day, but it didn't pinpoint exactly how far he'd gotten. They collected some blood droplets on the sill of the passenger side door, and those samples were taken and sent to the FBI lab for analysis. But apparently it had degraded, and the only thing they could tell was that it was human, but nothing else. And Mike's dad had noticed that something was missing from the truck. That specialty saw that he used specifically to cut down Christmas trees Inside the truck, they found the second page of a suggestive letter from a guy named Robert Downey that he wrote to Diana. The first page of that letter was later found in Diana's apartment. And finally, they found a manila-type envelope on the truck seat with the words, I love you, Diana, written on it. But the envelope was empty. Of course, they had to wonder at some point, was there something inside of it? They sent this manila folder and samples of Mike's handwriting to the FBI lab for comparison. Diana's mother told police the writing appeared to be very similar to Mike's. However, the FBI lab would ultimately say that the handwriting could not definitely be determined to be that of Mike's because of unexplained variations and the lack of a sample to compare it with. But they also said he couldn't be ruled out. Investigators would dig into Mike's background and his relationship with Diana to help make sense of the mysterious circumstances in this case. Just a couple months before that day in December, when Diana, Crystal, and Mike set out on that day trip, Mike had been charged with domestic assault and malicious damage after Diana alleged that he had kicked in her apartment door, knocked her to the floor, and rubbed her face into the carpet. The report noted that she had visible marks on her nose and left eye. And this wasn't the first domestic violence complaint Diana would make against Mike. There had been two others. You know, everybody is looking for Reamer. The idea is that he's either running or he was either involved in some way or another. So as far as everybody knows, he's still alive and he's still out there running around somewhere. You know, and they had a very violent domestic violence type. There's all sorts of police reports and things where her tires were slashed. Um, He made threats to friends and stuff that he was going to kill her, that, you know, she was going to have some type of real bad demise. Um, He he assaulted her several times before they had protection orders. He was in court-ordered anger management classes. Um, He was also taking Ativan. And, you know, I, I think I told you before when we talked, I know what Ativan was for, but I didn't, you know, I looked up the side effects. And one of the side effects is, you know, fits of rage. It, it can be one of the side effects. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Mike Reamer. He was described as six feet, 180 pounds with blue eyes, brown hair, and a scar on his upper lip. It was also noted that he was a skilled outdoorsman who was thought to be living off the land. They believed Mike was on the run, but they also wondered if he could be a serial killer. Days after finding Diana's body, Lewis County investigators who were working her murder case got a call from the nearby Pierce County detectives. Remember, the jurisdictions shared a border. These detectives wanted to compare notes on a recent double homicide in the woods that had taken place four months earlier not very far away from the fire road where Diana was found. On August 10, 1985, Stephen Harkins, who was 27, and his girlfriend Ruth Cooper, who was 42, left their home in Tacoma, which is a city near Puyallup, for a weekend camping trip at Tool Lake. The couple worked at the same vocational school, and when they didn't show up for work after the weekend, they were reported missing. Four days later, 
hikers near Tule Lake noticed a sleeping bag by a campsite deep in the woods. They thought it was odd, the sleeping bag sprawled out. So they walked closer to it, close enough to see a body inside. When authorities arrived at the scene, they found Stephen inside his sleeping bag with a gunshot wound to the head. They theorized that he'd been sleeping when he was shot execution style. But where was Ruth? There was no sign of her at the campsite, not too far away. Investigators would find that Stephen and Ruth's dog had been shot and killed too. Two months later, on October 26th, a skull was found near Hart's Lake, which was a mile away from where Stephen was found. That skull was identified as Ruth Cooper through her dental records. Investigators would recover the rest of Ruth's remains and clothing nearby. During her autopsy, it was revealed that she had been shot in the stomach, and a man's tube sock had been tied around her throat in the same way that one had been tied around Diana's. Police also believed that the tube sock tied around Ruth's neck had been used as a restraining method rather than as a weapon. If you'll recall in Diana's autopsy, the medical examiner had said the same thing about the tube sock that had been tied around her neck, too. Another similarity was the age difference. Ruth was 15 years older than her partner, Stephen, and Mike was 15 years older than Diana. Was this just a coincidence? Investigators also found out that the camping area where Ruth and Stephen had set up was near where Mike set his trap lines, and 15 miles away from where Diana's body was found. But Pat says that this is all circumstantial and that there's actually a lot of rough terrain between the two crime scenes, and they're not as close as you might think when you hear 15 miles. Uh, you can GPS both of those, and you can see the way a crow flies. It might be 15 miles or something like that over dams and mountains. And, you know, there's, there's no, I mean, you can follow some logging roads don't even make it all the way through there. So you would have to, anyways, come back into Mountain Highway, then Mountain Highway to LB and LB down, which is a long, long way. To, to be that. And, and, and people say, oh, they both had sock ligatures or something like that, that that they use. Now, my understanding is, and I matter of fact, I just read the FBI report before you called. All that stuff was from our, from our case was sent off to the FBI lab. And it, they talked about the different types of knots and they talked about no, no specific skill to tie those. So that means you could tie it, I could tie it, anyone could tie it. You know, it's not like a sailor, you know, ties all the same knot or has a special skill in doing certain things. So they went through that. Now, the Pierce County has also, our sock and their sock was, was sent in and they're not there's nothing unique about them. They didn't come from the same batch. They didn't come from the same anything. I wasn't able to get my hands on records related to Stephen and Ruth's murder investigation from the Pierce County Sheriff's Office. It's still considered an ongoing investigation. However, there was some overlap from the records I received from Diana's murder investigation with the Lewis County Sheriff's Office back in 1986. According to these notes, Stephen was found in his sleeping bag with a gunshot wound to the head from what was believed to be a 22 caliber round. Ruth was shot once in the chest with what was believed to be a 22 caliber round too. Remember, Mike's 22 that he always carried with him was not found in the truck or at the crime scene. Another comparison was noted in Diana's murder investigation files, which was that Ruth and Diana were both bound at the wrists. Ruth had also been bound at the ankles, too, which is all to say that there seemed to be two theories that police were working back then, that there was an unknown serial killer who wanted to create a signature with the tube sock and was responsible for the murders at Tool Lake and Diana's murder. But if that were true, where was Mike? Why hadn't his body been found as Stevens had? The other theory was that Mike could be a serial killer and that he was responsible for Ruth and Stevens' murders as well as Diana's. One detective at the time said, quote, We can't prove he's alive and we can't prove he's dead. If we could show that he was dead, then it would be my belief that there is an unidentified third party who's going around killing people out there. However, if we can prove that he's still alive, he immediately becomes a suspect and that changes the situation dramatically. Either way, things weren't looking good for Mike. Diana's mother told the investigator working the case that her daughter was afraid of Mike in the summer of 1985. Remember, they had recently reconciled before they went out on that day trip. But previously, Mike had threatened Diana, telling her he would kill her and get away with it. And according to police records, Mike had threatened other women in his life. 
But Mike's family and friends rushed to his defense, saying that he had anger issues, but he wasn't capable of murder. And Mike's dad pointed to his coat being found behind the seat of his pickup truck at the crime scene. He was adamant. There was just no way that his son would leave his coat behind in the middle of December. Investigators also spoke with a therapist who'd been working with Mike Reamer in the past. According to a detective's notes, Mike's therapist would confirm that he had received treatment in July 1983 for generalized anxiety disorder with panic attacks. He was prescribed the drug Ativan, an antidepressant. Mike re-entered treatment in June of 1984. The notes say that he was involved with a probation officer over, quote, assaults of one type or another. By July 1985, Mike's treatment was terminated. Investigators asked the therapist if they believed that Mike would be capable of murdering Diana. This is what she said. Speaking in general terms, quote, Mike Reamer's profile definitely did not seem to indicate that he would have done the crime as indicated. She advised that Mike was an anxious, immature young man still attached to his parents. She described him as very dependent, and there was a small chance that it was in fact Mike Reamer who committed this act. It was her opinion that if Mike had murdered Diana, the first thing he would have done would have been to call his father. But Mike didn't call his father. It appeared that he hadn't contacted anyone. It seemed the only known potential witness who could shed any light on what happened to Diana and Mike was their two-and-a-half-year-old little girl, Crystal. Had she witnessed her mother's murder? Circumstantial evidence seemed to point in that direction. Remember, when she'd been abandoned at the Kmart... When social workers would ask where her mother was, she could only reply, Mommy's in the trees. Now that Diana had been found in the trees, Crystal's chilling response took on a whole new meaning. But as the months went by, investigators learned from Diana's mother, who had custody of Crystal, that she was sharing more and more insights that Crystal's grandma would write down and relay back to detectives. On May 2, 1986, Crystal was looking around and suddenly exclaimed, Mommy's running in the trees. Daddy ran after her. Diana's mom would write. After a short period of time, she said, quote, Daddy put Mommy in the back of the truck. Me help Daddy. On May 12th, Crystal lay down on the kitchen floor with her hands behind her back and had begun kicking the refrigerator. When asked what she was doing, she said, Mommy was screaming. On May 20th, Crystal covered herself up with a blanket and said, Mommy's covered. She then kicked her feet a little bit and then laid very still. A developmental psychologist, Dr. Mark Haddock, was brought in to begin the delicate work of speaking with Crystal on multiple occasions over roughly two months. Things have changed from back in 1985 to now, and you have to take that first interview that Dr. Haddock gave, and she gave some disclosing, you know, some some very detailed information. So each interview after that has the potential of being tainted. Mm-hmm. And that's because the girl, in, in Dr. Haddock's case, I think he did five interviews five weeks in a row, or close to five weeks in a row. Anyways, they did it week to week to week. Each week they did it. And part of it is the doctor building rapport and being comfortable with him. And on a, on a child interview, the first one is normally the most accurate one because anything after that because the little girl hears things she's staying with grandma and auntie you know and hearing things you know maybe even seeing something news you you don't know or family members talking and kids even though i never said anything when she was around well the kids in the other room and they overhear that because kids are that way the transcript i reviewed of these sessions are harrowing 40 pages worth interview took place on April 28, 1986, about four and a half months after the day trip to check the traps and get the Christmas trees. The first session started with the doctor showing Crystal three dolls that represented her mom, Diana, her dad, Mike, and herself. They also had a toy truck, boat, a knife, and two stranger dolls, because Crystal had mentioned strangers previously. In one session, Crystal says something to the effect of, shoot him, and the doctor says, who shoots? And she points to the Mike doll. And Dr. Haddock says, is there another man? And Crystal nods. She also later says, referring to her mom, that this guy shoots her. But Diana wasn't shot. When the doctor asks if it's Mike, Crystal doesn't answer. In another interview, Crystal portrays her mom being poked with the knife. And when she did that, she would always remove the doll's clothing. When asked who did it, 
She said herself, and then when asked if someone else poked mommy, she said yes, but wouldn't say who. On June 23rd, according to the detective working the case at the time, his note says, quote, We traveled to the LB area and made stops at several areas along the way. The detective would say that the only place that we received any real reaction from Crystal was in pulling off the LB National Highway to the north, where there is a clearing in the midst of tall trees. At this location, Crystal slunk down in the back seat and actually buried her face in the corner of the back of the vehicle. Even though the sessions with the doctor ended, Diana's mom continued to write down things Crystal was saying and then reporting it to the detective. On Tuesday, July 15th, around 8.30 or 9 a.m., Crystal said that mommy rolled up the windows and locked the doors. And then a short time later, she added, there's blood on the window. When the grandma asked who was in the truck, Crystal said, me and mommy. A couple weeks later, in the early morning hours when Crystal was still in bed, she said the words, mommy die, adding, Mommy's in the truck, and then said, my mommy's hurt, and also the words, mommy's hurt real bad. Apparently on July 30th, they brought Crystal to the truck at the sheriff's office. And later that day, back at home, the grandma would write that Crystal took her two fingers on the left hand and bent them backwards very hard. And the grandma said, don't do that, Crystal, it hurts. And Crystal then said, me not hurt you, grandma, that's what happened to Diana. Then Crystal went over to her doll and pointed to the back of the doll's head and said, mommy had blood on her neck. She then picked up a doll and pulled off the pants and said, mommy's clothes are off and started hitting the doll against the crib. When Louise asked, do you know who hurt mommy? She received no answer at all. It's important to remember, Diana was found naked with just one sock on her foot. The fact that Crystal continues to remove the clothing on the doll that represented her mother seems to be significant. If she wasn't there, how would she know that? But remember that stranger Crystal had mentioned earlier? Crystal took a small wire and tied a doll's hands behind it. She said the word stranger several times, but it is unknown what it was in reference to. She said Mike was not there and not hurt. When Dr. Haddock's report, you know, his conclusion, he talked about that possible contamination, you know, later on, but he further comes down at the at his conclusion is saying she was potentially, you know, some of her information, some of the things she said might have been compromised, but he says you still have to go with, with what she said about the stabbings and things like that because it was consistent throughout the things and it started at the beginning and all the way through. You know, it's a little different now and it's a little different than, you know, law enforcement does an interview. We got a one-time shot at it. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, in this case, they did, I think, four or five in, in, in consecutive weeks or something like that. So it's a little different. I mean, I, I believe the little girl. I mean, I, I think that she's, she's innocent. She doesn't know anything else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she basically she's incredibly verbal for that age mm-hmm. and what she'd been yeah. through. And I do think that she definitely was there and saw what happened. And I think that the the Dr. Haddock or whatever, I think he did lead her a couple of times. Like, I felt like he wanted her to say it was Michael. She could have, you know, not wanted to say that it was him. But then she, her bringing up these strangers was really interesting mm-hmm. because she said that. She wasn't prompted to say that. As I was reading it, I felt like when you watch like a TV show or something and you see a little kid being interviewed and they're answering the questions correctly. It's just that we're not <laughs> fully understanding like the way that they're asking the questions she, you know she's getting confused she's really little I, I just felt for her and I hope that she's you know my thought was is I hope she's having a good life now I haven't talked to her I, I talked to um, her aunt you know this was a while ago and she really doesn't want to be involved in it yeah you know understandably because put it out of her life out of her mind because she never knew those people from adult perspective she was what two and a half three years old in this whole process here Mm-hmm. You know, so it's probably good for her. And, and, and I know they contacted her when she was about 18 and they tried to, some hypnosis stuff and nothing, like, you know, that kind of stuff. It didn't, none, none of that worked or brought back any brilliant conclusions or anything like that. And you might be wondering who dropped Crystal off at the Kmart? They would ask Crystal this. But whenever they did, she would never give a definitive answer. There's a time gap in there because no one knows. A little girl could have been out there for hours or minutes or, you know, who knows? No one knows. And you may be wondering if anyone at Kmart saw who dropped her off. Detective Beale says that there were a lot of interviews from that day, but nothing could be confirmed for sure. 
The maddening thing about this case, after finding Diana and reviewing her autopsy, coupled with the interviews with Crystal, the analysis of the crime scene and the red pickup truck, after looking into Mike Reamer and Diana's lives, which revealed the restraining orders they'd taken out on each other and witness interviews, coupled with Mike's history, there were assumptions being made, hence the warrant for his arrest, but there just was no definitive link to Mike and the murder of Diana that could be made. And a fundamental question still needed to be answered. Where was Mike Reamer? If he had murdered Diana and then taken his daughter to Kmart and left her there, why would he leave his truck and walk on foot in this rural location? And if he did abandon his truck there, why would he leave his coat in the middle of winter? If Mike and Diana were both victims of the person who had murdered Ruth and Stephen four months earlier, where was his body? And did that mean that the serial killer drove Crystal to the Kmart and left her there? Which brings me back to the position of Diana's body. During autopsy, they were able to collect a semen sample, but it was mixed with Diana's, and the DNA technology wasn't available to separate the samples. And according to the records I retrieved from the Lewis County Sheriff's Office, there wasn't anything linking Mike Reamer to Ruth and Stephen's murder at Tool Lake other than circumstantial evidence, like that tube sock being found at both crime scenes. I asked Detective Beale if Ruth had been sexually assaulted. Maybe there was DNA evidence from a rape kit that could be tested, and he didn't say, or wouldn't say. Detective Beale would only say that Pierce County detectives who were working Ruth and Stevens' murders were sending stuff to the lab now because DNA technology has advanced so much. What that evidence is, we don't know. But he does say people love trying to connect these two cases, but he's not convinced. More Murder Chronicles after the break similarities is that it's, you know, a couple, they're both killed, the tube sock, and it's easy to to read stuff in when you want to, right? Because it's like, oh, it's a serial. Do you think well, that they're... Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it can be. I mean, I don't think it is, but, you know, for, for drama and stuff, people try to link it all together and, you know, watch me be totally wrong, but I don't think so. I've, I've talked to, I can't remember the gal's name, she's Sergeant up County that we talked about this case over the phone and she was kind of in the same thinking that I I am so um, because their case is still unsolved as well right right and they have my understanding is that they had stuff at the labs for DNA processing you know you know all this all, all this stuff is like uh, you know you're hoping for the best and a lot of times you don't get what you want so I don't know if they had any resolution from the stuff that they sent to the lab, but I know it's taken me like a year and a half to get some things back. So they might be in the same boat. So three years go by and there's still no Michael. But a segment on unsolved mysteries in 1989 injects new life into what has become a very cold case. During the show, they feature a picture of Mike Reamer and they get tons of tips and sightings of Mike all over, including Alaska and Canada which would make sense considering his experience in the outdoors. Many believe that Mike had fled the country and was living off the grid. And investigators followed up on each one of these tips, but none of them panned out. However, over the years, that Unsolved mystery segment would replay, and every time, detectives would brace themselves for an onslaught of tips from Alaska to Florida, where people said that they were sure it was Mike Reamer. And again, investigators would dutifully run down all of these tips. But reading the notes in the files, it's obviously frustrating for them, because as the years rolled on, people were sending in tips of what Mike had looked like in 1985. His image on the show hadn't been age progressed. And as the years went by, Mike's dad was tormented by the idea that his son was considered by some to be a murderer. Mike's dad would hire a private investigator, not only to find his son, but to redeem his name, even though he'd never been charged. I don't know that I didn't get to talk to, you know, Mr. Reamer, uh, you know, his father to you know, kind of evaluate or know, know those things. Because you get a feeling when you talk to people what their abilities are, you know, as far as life skills, I guess. The private investigator, there was, there was some finagling down on the Squally River about, you know, the Indians and some trapping things. And this investigator went that route. There was a big thing with this private investigator going into the drug culture that everybody hung around with because he was hanging around. He's on a pool team at several different bars, and they investigated the dickens out of this, selling drugs and buying drugs, you know, this big drug ring type thing. And it, it was almost like fantasy land 
type reading this report, and I'm reading, and I'm, I'm reading, and I'm going, boy, that dad get ripped off here. Everything is speculation. No. No reality to it, you know, and he's telling the police officers, well, this guy's up for, you know, selling cocaine. You need to go cut a deal with him. He'll tell you where Reamer is, you know, you know, that type of stuff. It was like a wannabe cop trying to come up with some fantastic conclusion that's not, not based near, in reality, not near, not near going towards any facts and things like that. Are the detectives back in the day, they went and talked to all these people also. Several of these people that they talked to said, yeah, Reamer and, and Robertson, they were like hostile towards each other. And he threatened to kill her several times and, you know, that type of stuff. But, of course, that uh, private investigator doesn't put anything like that in the report. Now, they're talking to the same people. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. More than two decades later, there's a break in the case. In 2011, a property owner is marking his land with stakes, about a quarter mile away from where Diana's body and Mike's truck were discovered 26 years earlier. But this guy was walking on the other side of that busy freeway. Well, he comes across a skull. Well, he thought it was a bear skull. He, uh, so he, he doesn't know, you know, animals or humans or, you know, any of that type of stuff. So anyways, he gets his neighbor who's been out there as a countryman who lives there, comes out and shows him. He says, oh, no, 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 that's human, man. We got to call the police. So they call the police and this skull in another scene here is right on the corner marker, real close to his corner marker where he was looking for his, his marker. That's how this was found. That's how Reamer was found. Now, you have an intact skull with a jaw bone that was separated by a branch growing through his, you know, a tree or a big branch growing through his his skull, separating his jaw from the his jaw from the skull. Now, throughout the area, when they actually process the area, they find his clothing, what he was wearing, you know, as described by his father and people the day that he disappeared, in about a 30-yard radius area. And bits and pieces of his skeletal remains, femurs and part of vertebrae and things like that. And that's explained by the people as as being dragged around by animals over the years. You know, so that crime scene's there. So with this branch that grows through him, you know, through his skull, they cut that off and they count the rings. And they had, I think, 26 rings or 27 rings, which puts it back to the date. Or, you know, you can't say the exact date, but puts back to the year group that she became missing. And yet the discovery of Mike's remains doesn't reveal what happened to him or to Diana. It only deepens the mystery. He himself in his head because his, his skull's intact. You know, but that doesn't mean he could have, you know, done something else, um, you know, cut his wrist. I mean, his body, we didn't, there's not enough of his body to make any type of determination like that. You know, there's bones scattered over 30 yard in, in probably and I'm just looking at looking at the skeletal remains that are laid out on a table and I'd say there's probably a third of his body a third of his skeletal remains that are there now he was identified through his dental records so you know we know that's him but there's not enough bones and all that type of stuff to you know for an anthropologist or somebody to sit and go through and look for like knife wounds on every little rib or something if he you know stabbed himself through the ribs you know that type of thing those are non-existent so it makes it real difficult for anyone you know to do that evaluation now there was we know he had he always carried a 22 caliber revolver and that has never been found and he used to carry that for trappers when they catch, they catch an animal they shoot it in the head to preserve the pelt so it doesn't the pelt doesn't have holes in it so they use a small caliber pistol to do that so that's why he had a small caliber pistol now that's never been found but he didn't shoot himself in the head because the skull, the skull is fully intact. And, you know, there would be damage if, if you shoot yourself in the head, you got damage. You know, the body, you, yeah. you can imagine. And if he was there and he shot himself in the heart, animals, are le- they're not going to drag that away. You wouldn't think they would take, you know, who knows? They might think it's a toy. You know, I got a new <laughs> dog that drags all sorts of crap around. This is I true. mean, I don't, I don't know. We're, we're not going to know is the bottom line. I know these are people's lives, but it it, it adds to the mystery of, like, what happened. Detective Beale says in the nearly 30 years since 1985, that area where Mike's skeletal remains were discovered in 2011 has drastically changed. 
geology people here from the county that did map making and stuff and had them plot where his body was found and where the vehicle was. And today it's a forested area, you know, big, huge, you know, trees that are two feet, three feet across and, you know, very rough terrain. Well, back in the day, that was all recently logged off. So it's not that far. And it's, you know, when logging people that have seen logging areas, you could walk across that very easily. So from the vehicle, where the vehicle, his vehicle was found with Diana Roberts, Diana on the ground, to where he was found was about 1,800 feet. You know, that's not a, not a quarter mile, I think. Maybe maybe a quarter mile. That's the way a crow flies, a straight line. Now, you got to understand, right now, if you looked at it, it's a forest. You couldn't walk through there. I, I couldn't. I tried. It's, you know, it's just terribly thick like a, like a jungle. Now, the photo I have was from 1985 because the, the people in the county had these aerial photos from way back when. So I had them plot these coordinates and stuff on that map, the one I think I sent you, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that was all logged off. You can see where it was, it was pretty much logged off. So the way the crow flies was 1,800 feet. Now, if you walked it, walked down the fire road, back down to the main road, it was just across the street, you know, maybe 100, 200 feet off the Highway 7 across from uh, where Dinah's vehicle was. So that might have been a half mile walk or less, you know, if you if you figure that out. So, you know, we we don't know how he died. I don't think we'll we'll ever find that out. The discovery of Mike's remains does not eliminate him as a suspect. And here's how context is everything, because somebody could say, and maybe I've thought this, that, okay, well, you know, he murdered her and then went and sat by one of these huge trees and kind of contemplated what he did and his, you know, before he took his own life, right? But there were no trees there. Yeah. Because it was had just been logged. And then... Well, this... I could have sat down to an old stump there, I guess. You know, <laughs> guess... there are pretty big trees out there. Right. But, like, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like you that's what you one would imagine, right? But then you find out the topography was, you know, everything had been cut down there. You can't figure out how this guy died. And that 22 that Mike always had on him was not found at the scene where his remains were recovered. They did find five 22 bullets, not spent, and one approximately 11 and a half serrated curved blade with a missing handle, which was believed to be the Christmas tree cutter that had never been found. They also found Mike's holster with a belt, a strap, and a piece of material, but not the gun. Mike's remains being found with the additional physical evidence didn't bring investigators any closer to closing the case, but it did bring some comfort to Diana's family. He was with the sister, with Diana's sister, to go get a, a birthday present because her birthday was just a couple days before they disappeared. And they were going to go buy some Western vest or something from some store. So they meet at her apartment and he comes on to her, you know, like, hey, you want to hook up with me and things like that. And of course she says, no, I don't want to do anything like that. That's my sister. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do that against my sister. And, you know, the comment was made something, the effect that why she would do it to you. And she goes, well, that doesn't mean that I'm going to do anything. So just forget about it. And he made the comment something, the effect of, well, it's not going to matter much longer. She's not going to be around. So now that, that was made back in the day. Mm-hmm. This is a couple days before they end up disappearing. So my first question was, I said, did you tell the officers that back then, 1985, you know, or 1986, and when she's found and everything? And she goes, no. I says, well, why didn't you? And she goes, because I was terrified. I thought he'd come back and hurt me or my kid. Yeah. Now, that's pretty telling because, now you got to understand, he wasn't found for 25 years later. So she's thinking for 25 years she's going to wake up some night and this guy's going to be hanging over her because she knew that he was a violent person. Yeah. So she lived with that for all those years, knowing that he could come back any time. So, you know, when I'm sitting in the interview and I'm, I'm going almost feeling for her, you know, because I go, holy crap, you know, live, live like that for 25 years, thinking that the person that did that in her mind that her sister is going to come back and do her because he's violent and he made those veiled threats. And as in so many other cold cases, time becomes our friend as DNA technology advances. We know that in Diana's case, they're waiting to see if the sperm they found inside of her is Mike or someone else's. This was something that was put on hold for a couple of reasons. 
they had a DNA profile of, from a from a vaginal swab, and as a mixture, which is is very difficult. Our, our state crime labs can't split mixtures. It, it's a technology a step above what we have the capability of doing. I, I've been requesting this for a long, long time to send it to outside lab to get the DNA split, if it's possible to get the DNA split. And that's in the process right now. And also retrieving Reamer's DNA. Now, they've had DNA material from Reamer for quite some time, but it takes a, it takes a lot a lot of money and a lot of time to process that stuff. So the processing of that was put on hold until they had something to compare it to. So now that we have projection of something to compare it to, you know, if if this outside lab can split the DNA, then they'll be able to say, okay, it's Reamer's, Reamer's or not. And if it's not Reamer's or he's involved, then we we have a whole another avenue to look at. After working this case for years, Detective Beale has a theory of what he believes happened that day back in 1985. He has pondered this scenario over and over and over again. Remember earlier in the show when I'd mentioned that Diana never went into Mike's dad's house? If you'll recall, they made a pit stop there before going and checking the other traps further down the line and to get the Christmas tree. Where's mom? Why didn't she go in? Well, listen to what Crystal said. Mommy hurt. Mommy's in the woods. Well, everyone thinks, you know, everyone thinks it's up there by Elby off the highway back where the bodies were found. Maybe something happened to Diana there. We don't know. We're assuming it all happened up in the mountains, but there's nothing to tell us it happened in the mountains. Detective Beale thinks it's odd that Diana didn't go inside Mike's dad's house when Crystal went to use the bathroom that morning. Didn't mind going to that house. I think that's strange. I don't know for a fact what, you know, what happened. But what if, according to the little girl's statement, mom was hurt in the woods? Mom could have been hurt in the woods at any one of those boat ramps because they're all woods. But wouldn't there be a bunch of blood in the vehicle if she had been stabbed so well, many, we don't, 17 yeah, times? Don't, I, don't, I don't know. I just think that, I mean... There was, I mean, you know, there there wasn't as far as I know, but, you know, I, I don't know if that vehicle's ever processed properly to today's standards. Oh, right, right. You, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, I know that there were animal carcasses in the back. The, uh, there's an inventory of the animal carcasses that were in the back. Right, that were right. So rotting. how do you make up, how, you know, you, you got, you know, let's say you get there and you got a bunch of dead animal carcasses and blood, you know, that type of stuff taken out of there and they get rid of that. How do we know if there's ever any human blood or anything in there? I mean, because we don't. But and, they, and they turned the vehicle over. You know, all that stuff's gone. Now, they did an inventory of all the animal carcasses out of there. Mm-hmm. I think there's like 15, 20 animals, you know, beaver, muskrats, whatever the hell they had back there. So who knows? Now, back in the day, they're not thinking like we're thinking nowadays. We're thinking DNA. We got to, we got to, all this stuff's got to stay. They don't even have the vehicle anymore. Nowadays, I can tell you homicide cases I've had, the vehicles are still parked in impound. So now her body's in the back truck. Well, I can't go forward. I can't run her over. I mean, you know, this is my, or I just stabbed her here. Now I'm, I'm going to drive back into town, drop my little girl off. I know. It doesn't make sense. You so, right. So, so the little girl was gone before because the truck never moved after Diana's body got on the ground. I know, unless there was another truck, because she said bad truck. What if the person, I I mean, I, I just feel check like. Check this out. What if they got in a struggle up there and she, check this out. This is a good theory for you. Okay. What if they got up there and they got, in a, you know, she comes to, let's say she was incapacitated some part, knocked out maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe injured, knocked out. And she's in the car because the little girl said to help mommy get in the car. So who knows? I'm in the truck. Who knows what that is, whether it's in the back or in the front. So they get out there. Diane comes through. Comes through. She's struggling, and she stabs him. And he's pissed. Now he goes to work on her, but he's injured. You know, maybe stabbed in the leg, and he's bleeding out, and he walks across the street and dies. But how does the little girl get to Kmart then? She doesn't. She dropped off before. Mom's mom's injured in the vehicle. He's out there, goes to pull her out. There's a scuffle because she's still got some life in her. She's not dead yet. 
I'm just yeah. saying there's so many possibilities there, there you can are. sit there. You can, and that's what just drives you crazy. It's like a Rubik's Cube, and I think that's part of the thing where, I mean, I think that she, I believe that she was there. She, they took her out to the scene, and she crawled into the back corner of the car. I could be totally wrong, but I feel like she was there, and I, I think that, we'll see. I hope your DNA comes back. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see, I guess. Recently, those tests came back as inconclusive, but the case isn't closed. But what we do know for sure is that one in three women have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. But there is help at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.